It's the Sazapod. I hope everybody out there had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Just a short episode today. Got a few questions I want to cover. I want to set up and prompt you for what comes next as we close out the year. And uh, before I do all that, just generally, I feel very gracious and very thankful this year. Uh, it has been a, uh, a pretty trying year with some sad losses happening. But uh, I feel very optimistic about the future. And, um, you know, however chaotic or bad or crazy different aspects of my life may get, uh, the Knights of the Slice and the community and the patrons, it's always a nice soft spot to come back to. And, uh, you know, occasionally I get a bit internet poisoned and I spend a little too much time online and, you know, I've, I am susceptible to being annoyed by people. But generally, um, we've had some great vibes going on within the community this past year. We've done some pretty phenomenal stuff, including a couple different fundraising uh, aspects, a couple uh, charity events. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I feel really quite enthusiastic about uh, the Squires of the Slice and what we are going to be able to do moving into next year. So you have my profound thanks. Uh, I think, um, you know, obviously none of this exists without your support and your pledges and your backing of my plays. And hopefully it's worth it for you. If I've accomplished anything here, uh, I hope I've just injected a little bit of excitement into people's lives. A, a, you know, a pretty meaningless collection of pieces of plastic that hopefully sparks some, some curiosity and sparks some creativity within people. And then a, a nice little guarded deep forest community to hang out in and chat and talk about things. So, um, again, thank you. That is what I'm thankful for yet again this year. Um, we're going to move on and, uh, I'm going to start with a question from Matt Connolly, uh, because this dovetails nicely into a topic I want to cover. And that is, uh, with the full year action figure of the millennia renewal in December, be done, will it be, sorry, be done through Patreon as usual, as usual, or through the store. If we pay the amount in full, will there be a 13th figure per usual? I'm glad M Matt brought this up because it is time to start talking about this and having a discussion. Um, I am continuing on the AFOTM for at least another year. I'll be able to assess probably in the middle of the year if we can kind of, you know, continue on into 2025 or if, you know, a serious rethinking needs to happen with the club. But right now, again, I feel pretty optimistic and I feel pretty positive about everything. So, uh, for those who are newer patrons, of which we've attracted quite a few this year, um, in December, I open up the full year enrollment possibilities. And this will be through Patreon. And uh, essentially, you can prepay for your entire year and... There are certain bonuses that come along with this. Now, people that prepay their full year, they get their order packed and they get their order shipped a few days before the rest of the patrons. So, uh, if you live in California or Hawaii, that's probably going to be less meaningful of a bonus compared to somebody who lives in the same state I do. But, if you're relatively close by, you get a little bit of a lead on these figures. And that can be, uh, you know, a bonus in and of itself. The second thing is, if you prepay in December, technically you're owed an extra figure. 
So uh, every year I put together a, a very special 13th figure, not included in the club, that go out to these, uh, you know, very special patrons who prepay for the full year. Um, typically that ships out with your February, January, February package, which will be this year, um, let's see here, uh, that would be probably the first week of February leaving, if everything goes according to schedule. Um, so, not only have you prepaid for the full year, you don't have to worry about getting billed every month, you don't have to worry if your credit card changes throughout the year, There's, there will be no disruption in service. You'll get a 13th figure, you'll get a couple days lead time on shipping, and also, most importantly, the full year people really inject a huge amount of cash into my pockets for new production. I, I think like ideally, uh, having half patrons that pay every month and half patrons that, that pay for a full year in December, that's a really great strategy because it's important too to have cash flow coming in uh, throughout the year. So I wouldn't want everybody to prepay for an entire year, but it is incredibly helpful for people that are in the position to to pay for their full year in December or in January. Um, to give you an idea, part of Cray, or rather part of the Sea of Daggers project has already been paid for out of my own pocket, and I'm going to have to make a, you know, a big wire payment for the production of Cray uh, once I get the quote done. So there is tens of thousands of dollars that I'm going to be outputting before at the end of the year. Probably, you know, all together, probably in excess of $50,000, I would say, uh, to clear all invoices and put down all my deposits, pay off any balances. So to have a, 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 you know, a good amount of patrons who will prepay for a full year, that instantly gives me all the cash I need to set up everything for 2024. And if I have that cash flow, I can kind of plan out the club a little bit better. I can make uh, tweaks and I can add bonuses to things. It's just generally good for a company to head into the new year, not cash strapped, but to have a little bit of a war chest to get us through uh, what we need to. So for your consideration, if you are in the position to, and you don't want to sort of worry every month that your credit card is going to bounce or not, uh, I would say, yes, sign up for a full year. You'll get a bonus 13th figure if you sign up during December. And you're helping this project of Nice of the Slice in a tremendously big way. It's also worth noting, uh, 100% of Patreon money goes into either production or specific events relating to Nights of the Slice. Uh, you know, a, another good example, um, if everything goes to plan, I will be in Hong Kong sometime in April uh, to oversee various important things that are coming out down the production line. So the Patreon money that I get uh, traditionally has allowed me to fly to Hong Kong, to travel to China, and uh, all of that gets well documented, and there's some great videos and stuff that get put together for patrons. And, um, you know, it, it really... It's a vital lifeline to this special project of ours. So, something to consider. Oh, and of course, patrons are going to get access to the brand new 2025 Patreon-only secret store next year. Uh, sorry, 2024. Way, way ahead of myself here. Um, and that's going to be one you don't want to miss. Um, but generally, I'm excited. So, 
Everybody start thinking about if, one, if you're going to continue on with the Patreon next year, two, if you're going to pay for a full year, and three, when you want to do that to maximize the strategic value of such. Um, As I sort of record this right now, I'm in the workshop post-Thanksgiving. None of my clothes fit. I'm having to wear elastic waistbands. And I am putting together the the uh, November-December AFOTMs. This is, I think, the best one of the year. I think people are going to be generally very surprised. It is another one that is so filled with different parts, I can barely get the bubbles to close. So you're going to have a lot of building opportunities and potential. And uh, I've been working on this one for a very long time. Uh, it is also worth mentioning, I, we have what I think is the very best short film from Kenneth West so far. It ties a lot of very pertinent things together. And uh, this is going to start heading out to people uh, within the next couple weeks. Obviously, full-year people are going to get a head start. And then we will uh, we will conclude the club for this year. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what people's favorites were this year. And uh, I think in many regards, this year was the year I finally figured out how to do it. In previous years, I really struggled to have enough product to fulfill the orders. I really struggled coming up with ideas for the orders. There were a lot of months where things did not sort of crystallize the way I wanted them to, and I think I shipped what I consider to be an inferior month. Um, This year, I felt like everything was aligned. I had plenty of timing, plenty of planning. I had the budget to do what I wanted, and also was able to sidestep a lot of still ongoing production delays. So next year, I think is going to be even more precise, even more thrilling. There's going to be a lot more surprises and a lot more uh, to kind of offer my patrons. So I'm looking forward to that. Now to continue on with our Q&As, I want to go back to the previous Q&A thread because I missed a question from Brett Barnacle. In these colder months, I'm starting to towards turn towards the tough little pairing of words there. Various hot teas instead of my usual coffee. What's your go-to key? <laughs> I can't speak. I gotta be honest with you folks. I've ingested so much sugar and so much carbs in the last 36 hours that my tongue is completely swollen. Uh, I, I probably have the gout and I'm just waddling around like Danny DeVito on the set of Batman Returns. So you'll forgive me. I'm not really enunciating too well uh, right now. What is your go-to type of tea you're drinking when, uh, if you're drinking it hot. I've been on a pretty big Earl Grey kick myself. Hope you're doing well. Have a great weekend. Um, I drink, I almost don't drink water, and I know that's not a good message to send out to people, but the sheer amount of decaffeinated green tea that I drink, uh, makes up for it and adds a lot of minerals and vitamins that you don't get from just drinking water. Uh, so, yes, decaf green tea, unsweetened, is my tea of choice. When I wake up, I like to have a cold tea and a hot tea running simultaneously. Now, if I need a little kick, um, I like to have rob- robius, robus, robus, chai robus. Am I saying that right? I don't know that anyone's ever said it right. But I like that stuff. It has a sort of warm cinnamony almost coffee-like experience in drinking so i would recommend that earl gray is great 
you know, traditional black tea is really good if you need a, a to get a bit of caffeine coursing through you. Um, you know, generally, I, there's not a tea I don't like. Um, now that I say that, I maybe I've had a couple ginger teas that are a little too uh, too heavy on the ginger. That can be unpleasant. But in any case, yeah, I'm a, I, I would say green tea primarily, black tea if I need a little kick. Hopping over to the top secret Discord, available to patrons only, we have a question from the Robot Assassin. Recently you commented that there was currently, that currently the Globe material prices have risen about 400%. As a toy maker, to avoid such an issue, are you able to buy materials in advance at a low price and store them at the China factory for a period of time until they're ready to be used? Preferably in these instances, when their material prices have skyrocketed. Do you have any stories where such a factor affected the planned release of figures or a colorway you've wanted to do? Um, there is no reason for a factory to do that for somebody my size. Um, you know, and frankly, what is the benefit to any factory owner to dedicate more space to something like that? Now, if you are a Hasbro or Mattel, uh, you might own outright the factory you work with or, you know, such a significant piece of their business that, you know, you are essentially their sole customer. And in that case, maybe you make, uh, you know, some uh, exclusions uh, and allow for things to be stored. But in my case, uh, th these are all factors beyond my control. And it really, much of toy production on the level that I do it at you are at the whim of whatever the factory feels like doing and when they feel like doing it. Now, I feel lucky enough to have worked with pretty exemplary factories in my time, but ultimately, if they don't feel like doing something, they're not going to do something. And space is at a premium in these factories, much like it's at a premium for me here in my workshop. Uh, one of the, the biggest issues I had in the previous years of doing Knights of the Slice is this idea of buying for the future. Um, while it is good to do so, it really fucked up my business because I would have plastic sitting there that I could not utilize and turn into cash in a expedient time frame. And then oftentimes, when I finally was ready to sell a sort of a, a certain product that I had ordered 12 years, 18 months, uh, 12 months, 18 months uh, previous, by the time it was ready to sell, I was completely disinterested in selling that figure or the sort of style and the demand of the customer base had changed so dramatically that a figure like this uh, just kind of lands with a thud. So buying in advance really doesn't make much sense for my business. In fact, it was kind of a detrimental thing I've, I was really hedging on very early. Now, you need some level of planning in that regard. Uh, but the other thing is like the raw materials game, that's not up to me as the end maker. That is the world of the factory and the agents and they go out there and purchase this stuff. But largely when you're working with the quantities that I am, they're ordering this stuff a few days before they need it because there's no benefit to them to uh, stockpiling stuff. All this is to say, generally, the bigger factors in production are beyond my control and beyond the control of most other makers. You are sort of at the whim of what the markets are doing over there, what the different vendors have in mind in terms of their pricing, 
and what ultimately your factory will and will not do. So um, these little minute details from an outsider's perspective may, be, may seem like something you can make a smart decision and control or try to avoid. Uh, there is none of that. This is, a, this is an art form, not a science in many regards. Back over to Patreon, another question from Matt Connolly. Can the vinyl hobhead be attached to the mega, the vinyl mega knight with ease? Also, what makes a junge... I'm really struggling to speak here. I, I swear I've not had a stroke. I am just, uh, you know, I'm just filled up with sweets. Um, what makes a dungeon runner game like Gauntlet so much fun? Um, I've, I, I actually... This a good question on hob. I have no idea. I've never tried it. I, I don't... They were not sort of manufactured with compatibility in mind, so I don't know. Um, I don't, at the moment, have a hob to spare, so uh, I will probably test this out, or if anyone else has these two figures, it might be an interesting experiment to do. Of course, heat both of these before you do it, please. Don't break them. Uh, no idea, but good question. As far as gauntlet and dungeon uh, running... Um, I think it's just a classic formula. And in particular, when you have three friends with you. Now, me personally, I don't have three friends. I don't have any friends. I'm a lone wolf. But one day, maybe I'll be able to play Gauntlet with uh, all four people. Next up, I know earlier I said I had the question of the week, but this is actually the question of the week from our good friend Cappy. Will the demon kitten ever be allowed to enjoy outside time like your previous cat did? Um, yes, that is the plan. Now... I know there's a divided camp on whether cats should be let outside, and I'm sure people are worried about all the creatures and beasties that are out there, but this is a outdoor cat by birth. She was found on the streets. So um, I'm not going to deny her that pleasure. We do want to get her fixed first. We have a, a GPS locator collar that is coming, and also we want her to get a little bit older so she has a bit more acumen about herself when she's out there wandering around um you know our, our previous cat Raleigh was a apartment cat who lived in New York City and he was very shy very quiet just hid most of the day slept most of the day didn't really have a zest for life when we moved up here he was insistent on getting out and he got out many times and then eventually we were just cool with it and he would he was remarkable. He would come like a dog when you called him. He would, wherever he was, he would just yell outside and he'd come running and come back inside normally. But I witnessed such a radical change within that cat with his, his proximity to nature and his ability to go out and hunt. And it also provided us with a tremendous service because we have a lot of, we have a big problem with moles. We have a lot of mice. Um, you know, him doing what he naturally does had a huge benefit for the stuff we were trying to grow and lawn care and things like that. Like our lawn's been destroyed by moles since Raleigh passed away. Um, and that leads to bigger issues with flooding and, you know, all these tiny little, uh, you know, silent morning style things happen and they kind of have this, uh, this ripple effect within the ecosystem. And yes, now I know a small portion of the audience is saying, well, cats are destructive to ecosystems. Uh, okay, whatever. Um, so yes, the, the idea is that Lilith will be able to go outside when she's a little bit older, when she's fixed. Um, and also, you know, not for nothing, but there is a pack that is forming between the two dogs and her. And they, will, they go outside 
all day long during the summer. And, uh, you know, we want her to feel integrated with the pack. And I think the dogs have gone a long way in sort of teaching her certain things and certain boundaries. And, you know, there's no doubt that she's going to want to go outside as soon as they do. So we want to kind of cultivate that. Um, you know, we have concerns about her eyesight not being 100%, but they have other senses that are incredibly acute that, you know, benefit them in ways humans can't understand. So, um, you know, I, I think having witnessed a cat in its natural habitat, just being able to wander around a, a big, safe property, uh, it's not something I would deny this new one. So we're hoping it, it works out. Next up, we got a question from Eric Valverde that blends two very important topics, Pugs and David Lynch's Dune. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase here. Generations of design breeding have created smash faces that create breathing problems, inability to cool down, etc., etc. All these other really terrible melodies. I thought maybe Lynch put Pugs in Dune as a nod to the Tilaxu and their tendency to create genetic deformity. Uh... That would not survive in nature and just generally should not exist at all. What do you think? I like this idea, but I I, I sort of wonder if pugs are selected uh, as an allegory for the sort of white savior myth, right? Because obviously that was what Herbert was sort of trying to warn the world about, right? This idea of a charismatic uh, messiah-like leader um, turning out to be the Antichrist, essentially. Um, and I kind of, I, I think, perhaps, like, a pug is a good example of that. From, you know, far away, this is a desirable, cute little creature. And then close up, you see that this is a monstrosity. Uh, and I know I have pug owners listening to this out there. I'm sorry. They are the disposable lighters of the animal kingdom. And that, that brings me no joy. That's a very sad fact. But, um... You know, it is still a fact at the end of the day. Um, also, I, I think I mentioned it before. I'm reading the oral history of David Lynch's Dune. It's this big tome, and there's tons of interviews with Kyle MacLachlan and all the cast and producers. Really fascinating read if you're familiar with the film. I, I do not remember the name of it off the top of my head, but if you look up Dune, oral history, David Lynch, um, I'm sure it'll pop up. Really great, great book for uh, those who are interested in such things. Next question for Brent Lawson. Micros device ninja? Question mark. This could be awesome. Um, you know, I think that the micros style figures work best when they have a chest that can kind of take a tampo print or have a more sort of mechanical aesthetic to them. Because that that kind of pop-out electroplated plate that went with the original Micronauts, Micromen, I think that's kind of like key to the signature of them. The other issue working against this idea is, unfortunately, I think Micros have kind of run their course here. Um, the the previous Micros that I put out there to the world, Micros Prime, uh, sold abysmal. It, I, I was shocked that such a popular motif uh, failed to connect with the audience in, in a big way. So, um, you know, I think probably Micros are, are on a bit of a hiatus uh, for the foreseeable future. But I hope people are happy with the ones that, that did get made. Next up, a question from Thomas Bucci. Skull Grimson was too cost prohibitive to make in PVC, but most of his parts saw the light of day through the Simoff figure. Would you release the rest of Skull Grimson's parts 
hat, head, torso as 3D printed files in the shop. Uh, I've certainly thought about this in the past, but uh, the reality is these would need to be re-sculpted completely in order to work as 3D files. And the problem is, if I'm spending the money to have 3D parts sculpted, I need to see a return on that. And to date, our 3D file business is probably southward of $100 total in terms of what people have paid for for um, 3D digital files. There's no marketplace within the Night of the Slice world for this to be a, a viable or meaningful thing for the foreseeable future. Now, could those 3D files just be free giveaways? Sure, but somebody has to sculpt them and somebody has to be paid to sculpt them. So it becomes not a free giveaway for me, if you, if you catch my drift. So um, it's certainly an idea I've thought of, but I, I just don't think there's that much interest level in the 3D files. Now, I know I have five or six incredibly dedicated 3D printers that follow everything I do and would be dismayed to hear this, but I I have seen the download numbers. It's, it's less than 10 people that ever take advantage of any of the 3D file stuff. So uh, given that our Patreon audience is about 250 people, our general audience is about 1,000 people, that is a small fraction of the overall uh, toy buying audience. So um, you know, I, I don't know what the future holds for things like that. Now, finally, all the other questions of the week, those were fake questions of the week. I get to the actual question of the week that I've been waiting to answer and discuss from, uh, from, uh, Admiral Chris Wynn. Let's not forget. I watched the movie, The Killer, and he's giving a spoiler alert. I'm going to give a spoiler alert for everything here on out. We're going to talk about plot twists and things like that within The Killer. So if you haven't seen it, pause here go watch it and then come back. Uh, I liked it looking into the world of a hired assassin. I was just a little puzzled as to why he didn't kill his last target. Throughout the movie, he goes on and on about not showing sympathy and staying focused, yet he doesn't do the deed. What are your thoughts on the ending? Did I miss something? I also asked Chris what he gave it as a rating and he thought it was an 8 out of 10. And I think that's a fair score for sure. So I kind of had the same question as Chris after my first viewing. I've now watched the movie four times, and um, I've also watched a bunch of supplemental interviews and screening Q&As with Fincher and Fassbender and uh, a couple other people on the film. And essentially, there's two things that sort of came to me after watching it a few times. And um, one is that, one, this guy is not good at his job, right? And his narration is not, um, what do they call it? A unre uh, unreliable narrative. That is what we're experiencing as moviegoers. This guy is spouting on and on about perfection and planning and never losing your cool, never being empathetic. He goes against the grain with all of that every single time. And every encounter he has in these five chapters, he's fucking something up. And I think that that's a really brilliant premise to this sort of killer genre. It's the anti-John Wick in many regards because he fucks up everything. <laughs> and uh, I think that that is something that kind of gets missed when you're watching it because you're being told directly by the main character that he is not a fuck up and he is, you know, the best of the best. And yet every decision he makes is a complete disaster, right? So I think that's, that's one thing that became clear to me on multiple watchings. The other thing is, and this comes from Fincher himself, the different people he encounters and knocks off, this is essentially 
how do people react to meeting the angel of death, right? And recently, I watched The Seventh Seal, and that is about a game of death, and also how other people react to the presence of death, and, uh, you know, how do, do they try to negotiate? Do they plead for their lives? Do they, are they indignant, right? Um, I don't know if there's a direct relation for Fincher with The Seventh Seal and The Killer, but that is kind of the premise they were going off of. How do these different people react to the eminent presence of their demise? So every other person up until the final client that he meets, uh, they have various means of handling this. You know, Hodges uh, takes an indignant position. He tries to place himself as an authority over the killer. That doesn't go so fucking well. Uh, Dolores tries to bargain with him, does a little bit of pleading with him, although she has sort of accepted her fate. Um, the cab driver tries to, again, bargain with him. I'm going to leave the cab. I'm going to go. I'm going to walk away. Not good enough. Boom. He gets it. Uh, you know, we see the, the sort of different reactions of these different characters as they are met with this specter. And the final guy is the only person that is kind of honest about the situation, right? And I think in the killer's position, he doesn't actually need to kill this final guy. He only needs to tie up the loose end so that he can leave North America. And if he is assured that there is no issue moving forward, I think he kind of takes the guy at his word. And now another detail that I didn't pick up on until probably the second or third viewing, his gun is not loaded in that final scene. He doesn't get bullets from the gun merchant in Chicago. And the guy even says it. I, I do recommend watching this film with subtitles on. There's a lot of audio tricks that they're doing. And there's pertinent information that's spoken way to the left speaker, way to the right speaker by background characters that really inform certain things about the film that you would not you would not catch. I mean, you know, Fincher always has really wonderful and uh, sometimes challenging sound design. And this is one of those movies. So you, you should watch it with subtitles at some point. Um, but yeah, basically, Claiborne does not try to deceive him as Tilda Swinton does. Claiborne does not try to attack him as the Beast does. Claiborne doesn't try to negotiate with him as the other three victims did. Claiborne is just pretty upfront about the situation. And I wouldn't say that the killer necessarily respects that, but I do think he understands that the situation is under control, right? And he also is good at uh, instilling fear in people to get what he wants. And I think he does believe that Claiborne believes that if he wants to come back and off him, it would be relatively easy to do. So... I think that that is the reason why he doesn't kill the last victim. And I think it makes sense in terms of, you know, how everybody else has sort of reacted to him. I think also, quite frankly, Fincher is always going to sort of defy expectations. He's just a an antagonistic director in that regard. And I think that that's a really good way to do that to the audience. We've seen him encounter five different people. He has killed five different people. And then he gets the last one. And we don't get that sort of satisfying uh, resolution that we're, we're kind of hoping for. So I think it's also a particularity of the way Fincher tackles stories and, and sort of edging the audience in, in many regards. 
Okay, and with that, I am done. This little Thanksgiving mini-episode of Nights of the Slice is over with. Uh, pretty soon we're going to do a State of the Union address, and I will talk about uh, how Nights of the Slice is doing and where we are going in, in greater detail. Uh, we do have enrollment happening for the full years coming up in very short amount of time. We also have Action Figure of the Millennia, November and December crates leaving momentarily. I'm building them as we speak. Uh, but other than that, this is one thankful boy with a big belly. And uh, the only thing left to say is pizza out. Oh, wait. Um, last episode, we listened to version two of Pyramid Schemes. People seem to really like that song. Today, to close us out from Zed Star 7, is version four of Pyramid Schemes. We are getting closer and closer to a final version of the song. We're probably going to release it as a single. And uh, to me, it is very important, very powerful stuff. I hope you enjoy. Peace out.